Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Energy Talk Podcast. My name is Lubumi Alajide and thank you for being on. So before I jump into introducing the episode, I just want to thank everyone who listens to this. Um, throughout this week, I've, I had the opportunity to meet a few people who listen to the podcast and it has been a wonderful experience. If you listen to this podcast, just know that you're in very good company. And thank you so much for tuning in every week. Okay, so back to the interview I have today. Today we're talking about energy energy security and energy policy. And we're focusing mainly on developed countries. I know this is a complete change of pace from what we usually talk about. So we're not talking much about Africa or Asia or South America. Today we're talking about Europe and the USA and a little bit about China. So uh, today it's all about what energy policy is and how it plays into uh, energy security of developed nations and how it affects the projects that get approved and lots of different things. So today we're talking with uh, Anna, but I'll let her introduce herself in a bit. So I won't hold you up for too long. Thank you for being back this week and enjoy my conversation with Anna Mikulska. My name is Anna Mikulska and I uh, work as a fellow at the uh, Baker uh, Institute for Public Policy at Rice uh, University and uh, also as a senior fellow at Climate Center for Energy <clears throat> Policy at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And um, I do, my background uh, is in law uh, and political science. And uh, within the energy policy spectrum, I very much look at uh, the issues from that perspective, uh, which basically includes um, geopolitics uh, and market movements, as well as government's uh, reactions or government's policies uh, that determine uh, energy policy and, in a way, also energy market. Uh, okay. So uh, being a lawyer as your base profession, did you start out with energy policy or did you go from public policy and kind of venture into it? How did you find yourself in the energy uh, space? So I have never actually practiced law. Uh, so I finished law school and I moved into international relations and later into um, actually uh, comparative politics. So I'm coming from that kind of background of understanding how government works, why they do things they do in terms of policy, uh, policies, um, and also how elections uh, influence our world. So in that way, I kind of um, very much look into energy policy, including those considerations. So I usually look at, you know, how policies are set up, but also why potentially are they set up in a way, uh, given the government's inclinations, uh, electoral issues or electoral motivations and so on. Mm, okay. Uh, so my background is in engineering, and I don't know if you've met uh, some engineers while uh, in the universities you attended, but they're not very good with energy policy conversations or policy conversations to begin with. So during my undergraduate degree, I really struggled with this part of the uh, energy sector because uh, teachers don't really want to talk about it, they'd rather deal with theories. But after I graduated, this was a really uh, eye-opening thing for me because I just realized how much of an impact it plays uh, about a government and about how many projects get deployed and everything. So as an introduction to my audience to get them excited about what uh, how important policy is and especially energy policy, could you just give a brief, uh, uh, maybe a definition if you're teaching a class about uh, uh, energy policy 101? Well, kind of to, 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 to start uh, and, and kind of to relate to your questions about engineers, I actually have had a lot of engineers in my classes here at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, when I teach introduction to uh, energy policy, and um, I find that uh, actually they quite enlightening. Uh, so uh, having a class that consists often uh, of engineers and lawyers or law students, uh, business students, environmental uh, studies students, it's actually quite an interesting experience. For, and uh, you know 
just as my students, I hope, learn from me, they also learn from each other. So um, I actually really, really always enjoy uh, the mix of students and, and engineers are actually quite an important uh, part of that mix. Um, and But getting to your questions specifically, so energy policies are basically the laws and regulations or even the direction uh, of, poli of policies that the government is implementing in order to um, ensure that a country has sustainable energy access and uh, can develop uh, according to, you know, I mean, can, can develop sustainably and, and, and can develop well. And that includes, of course, uh, uh, especially economic development. Um, we all know that um, in order to develop, energy is paramount for any type of countries. And without access to ener sustained energy and, and um, cheap um, uh, or relatively cheap, uh, affordable energy. So without access to, uh, to affordable uh, energy, countries will be having issues developing well and, and uh, economically and, and, and providing the best uh, environment for their populations. Okay, so I just want to dive a bit deeper into this and really uh, go into real life situations where energy policy plays a role. Um, so now talking about uh, two things that you've written about quite a lot, actually, in your recent publications, that is the Russian gas pipeline, the Nordstrom 2, and also a lot about coal. So first talking about the, the pipeline. Could you just give like uh, a little bit of uh, background information about the back about the pipeline, so we can jump into it to see the role the policy plays and policy has played so far in the development of this project in particular? Um, sure. Uh, so, Nord Stream Two pipeline is a pipeline that's supposed to uh, that's in the process of being built, and it's supposed to bring approximately fifty-five billion cu cubic meters uh, of natural gas annually from Russia to Europe. And uh, the, uh, the pipeline runs under the Baltic Sea and delivers gas directly to Germany. Now, this is Nord Stream 2 for a reason. There's already a, pipe, a pipeline or a set of two pipelines actually running under the Baltic Sea and already bringing 55 billion cubic meters in annual capacity of uh, gas from Russia to Germany. This is an additional project which would, would basically double that capacity to 110 BCM um, uh, of Russian gas. Um, the pipeline is, is very interesting because it's also from, from policy perspective, because it's actually quite contentious. Um, if not really even the most contentious pipeline um, in Europe, <laughs> at, for sure, at this moment. Uh, so there is this disagreement between, you know, Russia um, and uh, a lot of uh, or at least several uh, European countries, uh, specifically within the regions of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, with Russia uh, arguing that this pipeline is supposed to provide energy security to Europe in general, and it's only really an economic endeavor, whereas the Central European countries uh, like Poland or the Baltic countries like Lithuania, Latvia, uh, they argue that this is more of a geopolitical project that is geared towards making Europe more dependent on Russia for uh, natural gas. Um, now, the, and the, the interesting part about this uh, pipeline is that it's not really thought to provide more gas, to bring in more gas to Europe. In a way, it's more of a replacement for Ukrainian transit. Um, so basically, until now, uh, majority of Russian gas that would go to Europe would flow through Ukraine. Um, however, there has been disagreements between Ukraine and Russia, mostly um, because of pricing of natural gas or uh, unpaid debt uh, by the Ukraine. Um, and those disagreements uh, have fueled um, several, actually, times uh, when gas was gas that would flow to Europe was cut off. 
Um, oh. And on the basis of those gas cutoffs, Russia has been arguing that Ukraine is not a reliable uh, transit country, and therefore it Russia needs another way to bring in natural gas to Europe. Uh, so basically, circumvent uh, Ukraine, and that's that could happen to a good degree uh, if Nord Stream two is uh, would be uh, w- is built, um, or when Nord Stream two is built. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and Russia says it's economic only. And there's a lot of countries in Western Europe, uh, in particular Germany, but also others like, uh, you know, France or Netherlands, which um, where companies have been, in, w- w- companies of those countries have been engaged actually in Nord Stream project, have been actually, uh, have owned some of the Nord Stream, the, the original Nord Stream pipeline project, but, and now have financed the Nord Stream 2 project. So, um, and that would, um, and, um, they argue that it's just economic. We just need a secure uh, route. Uh, so this is this whole, whole disagreement that's going on. And now the idea is, well, how can, what can we do uh, to make sure that energy security of European countries is being served? Is it enough to have a new route and the same supplier, Russia, or do we need to diversify diversify? Uh, suppliers, or do we need to diversify and stop that uh, pipeline from being completed, like uh, uh, several uh, Central and Eastern European countries are arguing? So it's in a way, it's almost a policy matter uh, to, and and the different policies are kind of uh, proposed by different uh, but different uh, countries um, within Europe as to what to do with that pipeline. The 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 thing I really like about what you've written so far about this particular project is how complex it gets very quickly. Because you have one side arguing that this is mainly for the economic economic benefits, which is to some degree true. But there's also a reverse side of it that gives them a bit more political control because they basically have a monopoly over the uh, the gas markets in Europe, and the projects just allowed them to have an even stronger hold into the uh, into the market. But as you mentioned about the diversification that other countries are looking forward to, so now there is the option of. Uh, buying LNG from let's say the USA or countries like Qatar and this is really putting a different kind of pressure in terms of pricing for especially the Russian gas and the the justification on why this project needs to be built as well. Right so um, right the, the LNG the entrance or the, the you know the, the, the start of importing LNG particularly in Central and Eastern Europe has been actually quite important also for 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 uh, uh, for Nord Stream 2 and generally for Russian gas deliveries so when you actually have if you look at the contracts that Russia would have with different countries in Europe um, the pricing would differ. And the interesting part is that the pricing uh, of gas that would be delivered from Russia would be actually higher for countries in Eastern Europe or Central Europe and lower for countries further out, which kind of really doesn't make sense economically at the first sight because, well, you know, with um, the... Um, Western Western Europe is further out and should be paying more since there is transfer uh, the, the, the the transit uh, additional transit fees, um, and this hasn't been a case because Russia has had been a very powerful and sometimes even a mon- has been in monopolist position in the Central and Eastern European markets. Therefore, it was as this dominant supplier could actually dictate higher prices, whereas it couldn't do it in uh, further out in Germany or other countries uh, because um, those countries had also access to other sources of gas. So it had to play by more of, of a you know uh, diverse market rules. Now, um, with the advent of LNG. Uh, especially in Central and Eastern Europe with LNG terminals in Poland and Lithuania, um, you see this changing uh, because now Russia, Russian gas has to compete at the very least with the prices of LNG that, co- that could be delivered uh, uh, to Poland or Lithuania. 
So, um, and therefore you will see that uh, Poland, for example, has already signed um, several uh, large contracts with US LNG providers and has been actually arguing that, or, you know, that has been saying that those, the LNG that they've contracted from, you know, in, in 2020s is actually 20, approximately 25% cheaper than the gas that Poland is now buying still from Russia on the basis of contract. Uh, of the long-term contract that is about to expire, expire in 2022. Um, so that's that's when you when 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 you see you know the markets uh, you know the market position the strong market position that Russia had and was able to dictate really ha- much higher prices with LNG. Now you have at the very least the ceiling. The pri- for the prices that Russia could dictate and the fact that Russia now is going to have to. Um, is going to have to uh, behave uh, in a in a different manner. We'll have to compete for markets. So this That's kind very of interesting. market, uh, yeah, option that that LNG has actually uh, provided. Now, how much of uh, of a game changer this is going to be um, doesn't only depend on how what capacity countries have to import, meaning, you know, what capacity terminals there are and so on, but also there needs to be a much more, you know, expansive network of pipelines within the region. So when you look at the, you know, Western and Eastern Europe, you and you look at the map with pipelines, you see how much more of a pipeline interconnections and so on between the countries are in, uh, in, uh, West, in the West, and it, this is not the case in the Central and Eastern Europe. So if this has to also develop, so, you know, so we, so that gas that, you know, Poland, for example, or Lithuania imports uh, as LNG can be later distributed to other countries. Uh, And then you will actually have Russia, you know, compete for for the market. You know, so earlier this year, I was listening to this uh, panel discussion about a certain energy outlook by the CSIS, and there was this analogy given about uh, comparing comparing oil markets to the to the natural gas markets, and what do what the panelists said was that the oil market is kind of like speed dating because oil is always in transit. You have oil tankers around the world, and there's such uh, complicated logistical frameworks that can get oil to anywhere it needs. So oil is always going to be sold regardless of where it it is at the point in time but the problem natural gas is it's more like a long-term marriage commitment because if if the pipeline is going towards you then the natural gas will probably be flowing continuously so it's like uh i trust you to keep providing this and i trust you to keep paying so uh having having lng LNG terminals is 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 a real game changer because it really forces uh it, it, it's like going to force Russia to be more competitive in terms of the supply of natural gas, or it's going to force them to completely lose that market control. So that's going to be very interesting to see. And uh, going more into energy policy, uh, energy security, as you mentioned, um, complicated geopolitical issues like these is why many countries in the world, uh, many European countries even, still rely on coal, for instance. So because they don't want to have most of their energy sources coming from other people that they can't control, so they have to go for something that's more locally sourced. And since coal is the most widely available uh, energy resource, arguably, in the world, so they have more more of an incentive to use coal, even even now that the the uh the energy climate or the uh, the, the actual climate is a, is a right. bit more against coal so can you speak a bit about that and what's really driving this use of coal still in the present day right um so there is several issues right that 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 come in play here well first you know it's the access and access is crucial um especially as you mentioned because of uh, the issues of energy security if you are if you do have domestically available energy source uh, this source of energy is safer in terms of ab- for ability of you delivering to you know to use it than any uh, 
imported source, right? Um, so that's one. Uh, uh, the second one is also um, it's also a price. Um, coal is generally just cheaper. Uh, than any other, uh, you know, uh, or not the natural gas uh, or, uh, or or you know, oil if you want to uh, use it. Although it's it's not uh, usually the case, but but generally, so so what you what you end up having is this idea of security supply when uh, you have um, you have availability at affordable price, which is very important. Now, um, in addition for actually, you know, uh, developing countries, coal is also la very labor intensive and in developing world, labor is generally cheap. So that kind of really become, you know, with a booming population, it is, it is, there, it is another incentive there for thinking uh, at, le at the very least about coal. So that being said, um, coal has... A lot of downfalls and one of them is of course its impact on our environment um, as a, a CO2 emission producer. Oftentimes governments have to look at you know what's at stake. So oftentimes countries uh, which will still rely on want to still rely on coal they will have to do something about it for example like China because you actually have, uh, you know, smoke in the big cities, and that's what's affecting the population. Um, in developing world, you need affordable and, uh, you know, secure uh, source of energy for any country to develop. And the developing world is the one that's going to develop the fastest, that will need a lot of energy, especially when it transitions from uh, from agricultural uh, to you know, uh, industry-based uh, society, and that's if energy is not affordable, if energy if energy cannot be accessed, then this growth will be uh, you know will be hindered. Um, on top of this, when you think about it, uh, you know, WHO uh, basically uh, reports that. 3 billion people use fire and simple stoves, stoves that are fired by kerosene, biomass, and directly by coal, and pose serious danger to their lives and health. In that way, when you think about it, those the 3 billion uh, you know, uh, of, 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 of population would probably prefer still uh, coal-generated electricity, right? Uh, and potentially, they could not afford paying for more expensive electricity. So it all depends on, you know, what, 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 what can be done. In the developed world, population and governments are, you know, first of all, they were better off. And in many ways, the policies can drive coal out. And that's what you can see, for example, in Europe, right? So um, even though coal could be the cheaper option than natural gas, in uh, you know, in majority of uh, instances, you still see coal being driven out by gas or renewable power, um, because the policy that EU has enacted provides for incentives to get rid of uh, the coal, which emits uh, a lot of CO two and bring in less CO two emitting uh, resources. Uh, but you have to understand that this can be done only if actually the societies that can afford it. Um, and it is more likely than societies in the West can afford it than societies within the developing world. And that includes China, it includes India, and it includes Southeast Asia, it includes Africa. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, a coal-generated electricity might be improvement over a, uh, over a you know, open fire or biomass uh, used in simple stove that actually affects their health. And they might be willing to, you know, switch to coal uh, because of that. Um, 
But it's also not only in the developing countries where we see the issue of affordability. So when you actually look, for example, at France and the Yellow Jackets protests, well, the, the, the protests, even though they, it hasn't been, you know, specifically over, over, uh, over environment or climate change, um, it has been sparked by high prices of energy. Um, by the segment of French population that has problems of affording more expensive energy. Um, and that, so this kind of affordability issue translates through the developing world, but also through the developed world. And uh, policies in all the, will have to, you know, underscore or will have to understand these relationships and will be in many ways driven by, by, by those issues. Um, so, in, in, for example, in the U.S., this is very different because coal is being uh, pushed out by very cheap gas, but it's market-based. It's not as much policy-based as it is market-based. Um, had the clean power plan been in force, you would see probably just somewhat faster exit of coal. But even without the clean power plan being enforced, the coal is exiting because of market, uh, you know, market-related factors, which is basically price. This is, however, not the case in most of other countries, and that's why you see the exit of coal in Europe based predominantly on policy, uh, and then uh, in other countries, um, it's still, we have to see how these policies will, you know, uh, look into whether or not and how to constrain coal. Hmm. This is this is this is a very interesting part of the conversation because now we're talking about uh this indirect cause and effect between uh how one part affects the other and this really brings about different kind of conversations. But I just want to focus right now on what you just said about the market determining and about policy determining. So right now, which do you think has more of an impact? Or like I don't know because the things important to uh, the government body and things that are important to the citizens oftentimes are not the same things. So uh, in terms of the energy transition right now, um, in, develop, in, just, in just the developed countries, which, which has more of an impact? Is it uh, the climate change and related, related policies or is it mostly about energy security and, uh, and sensible pricing? Again, I think it will end up being dependent on the country. Um, so you can talk about general, uh, you know, general uh, aspects, and you can see definitely that the policy in the developed world uh, definitely, uh, you know, affects uh, affects um, the energy use and what type of energy you're using and so on. And that policy, particularly particularly within the EU, is based on climate change uh, considerations. Um, this is less; it is less so in the US. Um, as I've mentioned, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, clean power plan uh, has not been really uh, enforced, hasn't been, you know, um, implemented. So, and however, uh, you see, you know, exit of coal because of mostly market driven, uh, you know, because it, it, the exit of coal is mostly mar market driven. Um, now, and energy security will always play a role and and you know oftentimes uh, it will play a role specifically it is going to be different for different countries so different countries have just different you know they they have different endowment resource endowment they have they are you know situated differently so do they have access to 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 the shoreline or they don't because if they don't they cannot um, you know have their own LNG import terminal, and in that way, they again are, you know, uh, constrained to receiving gas, uh, for example, uh, you know, uh, through uh, through a through a third country. Uh, is that country, you know, a large country? Is that country a, 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 an ally, and so on? All this is gonna matter. Um, the other things that are gonna matter is, you know, of of course. Uh, 
uh, past. Uh, so, you know, being from Poland, uh, I have a good kind of, you know, uh, I hope to have a good understanding of, 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 the, of the situation <laughs> there. But, uh, but you know, what you, what you see is that coal is really big there. Our coal has been part of the economy for, you know, decades, um, even though now the production decreased significantly and, and you see that the use has decreased, it's still a very big portion of Polish energy generation, particularly electricity generation. Um, and it's very hard to get rid of it. Um, despite the fact that EU policy policies drive Poland to kind of you know uh, to reduce um, the uh, the use of coal, and but this is there are domestic factors there, right? So you have an industry that it's a large industry. It's uh, actually uh, uh, it's within a very small portion. Uh, so so it's. Um, well, it's located within a relatively small portion of the country where you end up actually having a lot of population, a lot of population depending on coal industry, a lot of population that's concentrated and also has quite a large electoral power. Uh, so, you know, for 460 seats, 100 seats in the Polish parliament, the lower chamber of the parliament are actually come from the coal producing or hard coal producing regions um, and those regions are actually quite also even distributed between the different uh, you know competing parties so now you have close elections large number of seats and coal dependent economy well when you think about it each and single party that runs for you know uh, in elections will have to consider it and uh, abandoning coal will have electoral consequences Right. So uh, all these things beside energy policy that's set up by, you know, by the EU, uh, aside of uh, international agreements, in, uh, you will have to consider electoral consequences in Poland as well. And you will have to also consider issues of energy security. So when you think about it, when, you know, most of Polish natural gas is being imported and for now a lot of it is being imported in Ru from Russia, getting rid of coal creates additional dependence, most likely, on that gas, right? So mm -hmm. uh, now you introduce even greater dependency uh, on foreign sources, supply of sources. And it can be a concern about Russia not playing by market rules, trying to use its dominance geopolitically. But also it can be concern over the markets. What if the prices of natural gas will just spike, well, if you are bringing in a lot of LNG and at some point the prices spike and, and you know, and you are actually dependent on it, this will impact your economy. So, again, it's, it's a lot of concerns about energy security, electoral issues and so on. And that's why you will end up seeing that, you know, different countries, even when they have similar goals, for example, set up by the EU, will be implementing uh, the, 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 you know, uh, or will be reacting to CO2 emissions, use of coal differently. Um, and it's going to be based on, you know, uh, on, on their domestic situation with respect to energy and energy resources. Mm, okay, so this is this is this is a part I I don't imagine myself saying this often, but this is this is what I feel sorry for some politicians sometimes when they have to condense um, complex conversations like this into uh, simple digestible talking points so people can hear it and just immediately understand and go to the polls and vote for them because uh, that is one of the biggest challenges that people face is communicating uh, the complexity of energy policy especially in terms of uh of the of the of the the, the the climate change movement that's going on and to be factual and all the while be impactful at the same time and most people don't do very well uh, i don't think that anybody uh, as far as politicians are concerned has really found the right balance in communicating these things and worrying about winning the next elections and all this so it can get very very complicated as and going back to what you said earlier about um 
the effects of uh, energy policy or about uh, climate change is not something you see very evidently unless you see something actually burning and then it registers in your brain that, okay, this might be bad because I can see smoke, but that's that's really not the point. CO2 is largely invisible, but the the effect is is accumulative. So that really makes it a very difficult um points to communicate and you've written especially in uh, um, one of your articles uh, think globally act locally and think globally again that there is this larger uh, cause and effect that even our actions tend to put on the environment so as we're talking about um, the use of uh, coal for instance the the fact is that uh, we can't stop using coal because large in, large large industries are formed around it and so many people depend on it. And one country that I know in particular in Africa that has this problem is uh, some South African countries like South Africa and Botswana. They have economies largely driven by coal. Many people are employed by coal companies and it's very hard to tell them that, uh, okay, we're trying to save the environment. We need to stop producing coal now and you're already... Uh, sparse energy energy uh, access would get even more expensive. That is a very quick way to lose an election and <laughs> and probably lose a few more things. So uh, so communicating these things, working so long in energy policy and public policy, how do you, or if you've been in a conversation where you've had to start up and communicate complex things in a very digestible manner, how do you go about that? Because that is that is probably the most difficult part and the most challenging part so far that many people are finding right now in the past few years. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> that's exactly it. It's extremely hard, and and it it hasn't been really. <laughs> that successful uh i don't think i'm you know it's i mean uh when you think about it developed world has had problems communicating or setting up uh communicating communicating channels with the developing world on how things should proceed um so one important thing that has been set up during the cop in paris is that you know the developed world could contribute you know, uh, financially uh, to uh, energy transition in the developing world, because that's that's in many ways a problem, right? So how do you ask a country that's uh, with a you know with a very low level of development, where the you know with poor uh, population, how do you ask them to stop using an energy source that could get them out of this low, you know, and could increase the or could push them into the more developed, uh, you know, state? How do you ask them to stop? Uh, what do you do uh, in exchange? And I think we are struck. We are really struggling with that. Um, so you know, it's 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 great that the developed world and the populations in the developed world, which are generally wealthier. Um, are thinking about you know how they can be part of 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 you know fixing uh our addiction to 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 uh carbon or uh you know or uh, how can we you know decrease the co2 emissions uh but the fact that we going to you know um do this doesn't mean that people in other portions of the world will uh so and when you when you look at the projections of growth in terms of energy use it's not the developed world that's leading it's the developing world it's predominantly for the next two decades it's gonna be um you know india china generally southeast asia uh later on you know you you will enter also africa uh, and so on uh, so when, when you think about it that we it's it's very important that we commit to curbing CO two emissions in the developed world. However, when you see it, all that growth happening in the developing world, with the developed world kind of staying at the same where it is uh, uh, right now, well, then you obviously need to do something about that additional energy that's going to be used there. Because for now, when you look at the, you know, for example, for coal and 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 the demand and and uh, you know consumption, you pretty much, uh, you know, you look at IEA, EIA, the BP outlooks. Twenty years from now, 
all these outlooks generally agree that, that we're going to use the same amount of coal that we are using now. Well, that's kind of depressing because <laughs> it means that, you know, we pretty much are standing um, in one spot and we're still going to be produce the same amount of CO2 unless something is done. And what needs to be done is not within the developing developed world because 20 years from now that the predictions for the you know amount of coal that we are going to be using already includes the commitment of the developed world to cutting on CO2 emissions. It's in the developing world where we need to do something. And I don't think we have figured it figured out what what. So, you know, we we are talking about of course renewables. The issue of renewables is that yes, we can you know it's it, we can put them out there. We we you know in for example Africa has a great you know amount of sunshine for example right. So we could think about solar, but we're still not at the stage yet that we can use renewables and not exclusively renewables and not experience issues of intermittency. And when you think about it, yes, um, these uh, renewables will be great for the populations living there, which has no access, uh, access for now to electricity, but then now they will, and they won't mind that intermittency in a way. Um, maybe they will have, you know, small batteries or so on. And this is fine on a smaller basis, but this is not fine, for example, for industry development. And when you think about it, in these countries, what you want in order for them to develop economically, they have to build those industries um, of dif you know different, be it, be it just typical, you know, or more typical industry, but also tech industry. When you think about how much energy those servers need to run, well, you and those servers need to this energy all the time. Well, this becomes an issue, right, for mm -hmm. developing those industries in the developing world. If it, it experiences issues of intermittency. So what's the what's the base power? What's the base load that can that would allow those countries not only to have electricity but have reliable electricity, and uh, that provides you know basis of growth. It can be nuclear. Um, it could be coal. It could be natural gas. How we set it up and how we encourage those countries to use potentially the least CO two emitting uh, emitting industry. Um, on top of that, you know, with, I whenever I teach uh, my classes, I always ask uh, at, the, at the very beginning, you know, what is the climate policy about? And a lot of time, what I, the, the, the answer I get, um, which actually you can see this uh, oftentimes in the media, the answer is, get, well, we have to get rid of fossil fuels. But this is not a goal of climate policy uh, or climate action. The goal of climate action is getting rid of emissions. And this can imply getting rid of fossil fuels, but it also implies other actions that could and should be potentially taken, especially in the view that we are still predicting use of fossil fuels 20 years from now. Um, so what can that be? It can be, you know, um, carbon uh, CO2 sequestrations, you know, carbon capture and storage, um, maybe, you know, um, uh, and different other different technologies that not only provide alternative to, fossil, uh, uh, you know, fuels, alternative to fossil fuels, but also ways to get rid of those emissions that fossil fuels are, you know, are, uh, you know, will produce. Um, kind of saying that, oh, you know, we just need to get rid of fossil fuels. We not going to worry about the emissions that they're producing because we don't want to encourage them misses the fact that it may not be a realistic option to get rid of fossil fuels. Um, so in many ways, you know, it's, it's, I think the important fact, the important things are to know what the goal is, be realistic about what can be accomplished at least under current, you know, under current uh, state of affairs without a technological break breakthrough that could allow us, to, for example, to use renewables, um, store them uh, in an easy and relatively cheap way, um, and think about where the increase of 
energy use or energy consumption occurs because that's where you definitely need to focus what you need to target in order to reach your goals. If you only target on countries, you know, within the developed world, we might, you know, we might achieve a lot. We might, we might cut our use of coal and we will um, because we can often afford it. Uh, or like in the US, the market also supports it. But, but then again, what does it mean if we do not address those issues in the developing world, or, you know, for example, in Asia or so on? It happens, you know, if we stop using coal or oil for that matter, what will happen is the crisis <laughs> are potentially going to, you know, going to drop. Um, so we are now using more expensive, you know, whatever it is, whatever a substitute for coal. Um, the prices of coal are dropping because the demand is not there. So what it will do to the demand in those countries that are still using coal? Well, they'll bring this demand up because now coal is cheaper, right? More affordable and can compete even better with natural gas or renewables or so on. Uh, so, you know, we can still feel good about ourselves, but in a way are not really fixing the problem or in a way we almost, you know, almost subsidizing the use of coal or other fossil fuels elsewhere. Uh, and that's why I, 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 you know, what I talk in my article about is to make sure that we are considering, you know, all the things that happen, I mean, all the consequences, that we are considering, considering all the consequences of our behavior. Um, and that without it, we actually might not, not, might not achieve and, you know, what, what, what our goals are and, or even might hurt our goals, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the ability of our goals to be achieved. So, um, yeah, that's, I think that's, that's very important uh, to have a global understanding of what's happening, right? So, um, you know, in many ways, I am optimistic about uh, the future and the actually part that the developing world can play. Um, you know, we know that the, the idea of leapfrogging where countries have effectively, you know, leapfrog over an old technology and you know one thing that comes to mind right away is phones right in many parts of the world um many parts of the world have never had a landline but they do use uh, cell phones so this this idea of leapfrogging or that you know it, it it works it can be done under specific condition what allowed you know that 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 uh that leapfrogging is technology and I think in many ways, uh, the, the, the way that the developed and the developing world can work together is um, research and development, um, you know, making sure that we actually push for, you know, um, progress in different types of the technology and and advancement different type of technology. It can it can and should be renewable, uh, nuclear um you know, CO2 uh, capture, all of the above. We should not constrain ourselves to one solution because, uh, and, you know, pour all the possible, you know, resources into one solution because we might be missing something otherwise. Um, that's why, you know, our the way we understand the world, the way we, we, we should look for solution with, for the climate, uh, for the climate action, for, uh, our use of energy should be the broadest possible. That means in terms of, you know, looking at different energy sources, looking at different needs, um, not only have the centers of research within the developing world or developed world, but also within the developing world. And that's where the developed world can help. So when you think about resources that can be brought into the developing world for research and development, for funding researchers, for bringing them, you know, to, uh, you know, uh, to the developed world or, uh, you know, and then back into the, you know, making uh, sure that the developing world is, is accessing those technologies and so on. Um, I think there is a very, very big potential in making sure that this is happening. So we find solution that, solutions that not only gonna, you know, reflect what, what we want, but also going to reflect what others want. 
um, what others need. Uh, and in that way, all of us can actually commit to a goal. Because if we are not going to, you know, use uh, tools that are compatible with uh, other countries' needs, well, that there is a very big chance that those countries end up not committing effectively to, you know, to, 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 to the goals of uh, climate change, CO2 emission reduction, and so on. Um, so that's, uh, I think, very important, especially at the time, I mean, especially that when you look at international arena, um, there is really no one international force that can enforce any type of international agreements. So, you know, all the agreements, including COP agreement, are based on countries' will to, uh, you know, to introduce the changes. If the will is lacking for any type of reasons, electoral reasons, you know, energy security reasons, pricing reasons, nothing is going to end up happening. Uh, only if that will is there can we see the progress and can we see actually the commitment that's spelled out in the international agreement um, going forward effectively. Now, I hope you enjoyed the conversation we just listened to with Anna and it has been a nice change of pace so i need to correct myself in the intro i noticed that i said uh, developed countries and i should have said north america instead of just saying the usa so any canadians listening i'm sorry i didn't mean to leave you guys out so uh yeah so now we understand a little bit more about uh, energy policy and energy security and how it differs from uh the perspective or the approaches taken in developing countries like the ones in africa and asia and south america and it really goes to show that this, if if this is where the rest of the communities, developing communities are moving towards, then they need to, I don't know. I just think that de developing countries need to find different routes to solve their problems because uh, if we just take conventional working models, it's not going to end up so well, especially with the... Uh, um, the climate change and everything that has to do with that and the fact is it's going to affect people in poorer regions and developing countries more than it would affect people who have the infrastructure and the money quite frankly to deal with simple things like uh, drought is something that it can happen in a city in America and it's just a minor inconvenience but if it happens in a village somewhere in Nigeria for instance then people die so it just it, it just goes to show the different ways that challenges have been uh, faced and how challenges have been handled and it's important to get a a wide scope of different approaches to these things to understand that uh, it's a great big world different people are going through the same challenges and and they're fixing them or attempting to fix them in different ways so uh, thank you for listening to this episode uh, it was a pretty long one it's kind of nice to go back to long episodes so the next episode is going to be a bonus episode and we have a lot of announcements for the podcast. Uh, so I'm going to be back with Jennifer talking about a lot of things. So I hope you're there and it's going to be uh, a very interesting one because uh, a lot of exciting stuff has been happening the past few weeks and I can't wait to tell you guys about everything. So I look forward to seeing you guys next week and having another insightful conversation about energy. And this has been your host, Lubin Malajide, signing off. Have a wonderful week, you guys. Thank you.